Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this podcast, which is actually kind of part two of one we started earlier. And I led you down a rabbit hole, Maestro, because we were talking about, well, British music and British composers, starting off with the early ones and then coming up to the present day. But we went off into different things. And now I want to just haul us back onto the composers. We had a good look at Tallis and Bird and Gibbons and those great early ones. And I'd like to bring us up a little bit nearer to people like Vaughan Williams. We'd started to talk about Vaughan Williams. That's a jump of three centuries. I know, but we'd started to talk about him. We had started. Yeah, well... Because he well, collected yes. all the British but, folk songs. But we, the, where we went down what I would think is more a wormhole okay. than a rabbit hole okay. was talking about Purcell and the introduction of dissonance which was so innovative, but also his wonderful way of setting English text. Because Purcell is remembered for a lot of his music, but particularly in the 20th century by Benjamin Britten and Tippett, Sir Michael Tippett. They treated Purcell with great reverence and always cited him as one of the great composers of English text. Because Purcell was distinctly English at that time, whereas the Tallis, Gibbons, Wilkes tradition had echoes from the past in Italy and Spain, and Germany too. Now, Purcell wrote music in, in, in all the genres. He, he, even, he wrote operas and masks, which were collections of... Well, they, they were a drama around a particular subject, and were commissioned for royal events, uh, big aristocratic events. And they were sort of operatic in intent, but were still very formally organised. And would they have had a big orchestra or quite a smallish mask? Yeah. I was well, imagine well in, those days, in those days, the orchestras would, would be seen to be quite, quite substantial. Yes, the string section and the introduction of woodwind and drums, timps, timpani, kettle drums. And trumpets, oboes. You sort of have to remember that Purcell preempted Bach and Handel. I never knew it who was so long ago. That's my absolute gap in knowledge, which, which you filled up. Which is why Purcell is is so highly regarded. He he has a very high place in the in the pantheon of British composers. After Purcell. There is really no one of the same stature in British music, really, to compare with the composers in Germany. And it was Handel who made the biggest mark in English music. Because he was German. He was German, but he came to live in London. Yes. And devoted himself, really, to commissions 
for, um, for operas in English and Italian. And, and of course, The Messiah was premiered in Dublin um, and Handel became a, a major figure. His fireworks music, his water music. And actually, the fireworks music now, well, it's incredibly well known along with the with the water music. These are two of the most famous. We regard them as British pieces. And if you listen to the fourth movement, La Réjouissance, you can certainly feel a sense of Britishness within it. almost adopted Britain, well, he England, did. He, London. He lived in London. He, he became an enormous character. In the Handel in House it. in London is bang next door to Jimi Hendrix's house in London. And they're run by the same, I think, charitable trust. And That's it's rather right. lovely to think that Jimi Hendrix took up rooms bang next door to Handel. And I've been into the Handel's House Museum and the rooms are so tiny and they've done them as they would have had them in those days. A little fireplace which would have had a coal fire burning. Um, and he a wrote piano. by candlelight. He wrote by candlelight in these quite small rooms. And to think of him composing the Messiah in these tiny know, little rooms. In, in one enormous flood of inspiration. With ink pen, scratching or pencil, That's whatever right. he did, writing onto... onto um, it is extraordinary to think because the, there's so much music in, in the Messiah. You literally feel as if every new movement just came flooding out. He was truly inspired by the wonderful text, which is chosen from the Bible by Charles Jennings, to whom the, no amount of gratitude can be enough, because Handel was amazingly inspired by it, obviously. Extraordinary man because he was a great philanthropist as well. He linked up with Hogarth, the great British painter, who did the Rake's Progress and those famous sort of early cartoons and things like this. Mm -hmm. And they helped found or fund Coram's Field, which was for sort of orphaned children. And I think that he wrote, I think one of the performances, what, what would it have been? Messiah or something? Or water yes, music, something which was written for, and, the, and the money went to, to raise money for these children. Cornfield still exists. It's extraordinary. He, he, he was really making quite a lot of money, but it was a hand over fist. He had to write another blockbuster opera to carry on making a living. It's such a different life from Bach in Germany, tied to the church. And Handel's output, he is an honorary Englishman for sure. Handel's output covered all the genres of music at that time. Small concertos, concerti grossi, they called them, for string groups, many of those, sonatas upon sonata for different instruments and keyboard and strings, and all of them now are done by choral societies up and down the country and all over the world. Probably the most successful international composer at that time. Just nudge my mind, what date are we talking about, roughly? Well, he was born the same year as Bach, 1685, and so it's the end of the 17th century into the early 18th. I believe I heard that Beethoven revered him, literally revered him, said this is the greatest composer. 
of all time. And if I if I could, I, I would that. bend my knee and take my hat off at his tomb, which was rather touching to think of Beethoven. I, I'm always amazed when I hear of composers knowing other composers. I love the idea that Beethoven knew of Rossini yes. and rather admired some of his work. The Barber of Seville. Yes. He wrote to him famously, isn't he, and said, write more barbers. <laughs> Beethoven wrote to Rossini? Yes. And did Rossini write more barbers? Yes. Sort of. Yes, 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 he did, he did, yeah. he did. He admired Rossini's skill, but I think he also admired his lightness of touch. We're leaping years here, but we're allowed to do that in this particular episode because I just want to get on to who would be the natural successor in stature in British music after Handel? Well, there was a big school of composers that emerged at the end of the 19th century when Stanford, Charles Villiers Stanford, a through and through Irishman, rose to the very top of the, the, the establishment and was invited to be professor of the first school of composition at the academy. I think it was the academy or the college, and he taught nearly all of the big names of the composers around th at that time. So he, so he taught um, Edward Moran, he taught Frank Bridge, and out of that sprang what Ravel, Maurice Ravel, a hugely high achiever of music and composition in France, Ravel defined as a distinctive English school and this was when, when music in Britain again adopted all the influences that were around in Europe at the time. And don't forget, the Viennese school was very prominent and Mahler. And you, it's terribly important that we listen to Maurice Ravel, who was a, a, a complete master and very highly respected. That, that he said this, that he respected the English tradition so much because the English public did not necessarily take to this new generation of composers, including Arnold Bax, who is the most wonderful composer. And to such an extent that Edward Elgar, who became the king of all of those composers, was, more, was respected more in Germany than he was here in England. Well, but his music is so popular now here. Yes, it is. Why do you think that they left him more in Germany than here? I, I, I think this is more to do with social history. I hope it's not to do with the business of that we as a culture will always prefer a foreigner mm. to what we do at home. I hope that's not the case. But you can see evidence of that syndrome even now. It's not that we don't have, for example, lots of British conductors of a top rank, but you look around at the orchestras and nearly all of them are from Europe, Finnish, Russian. So there are still elements of always thinking that someone from abroad is going to be more of a draw for the public. Or, But in Elgar's case, for sure, he hands off the conductor, praised Elgar to the skies and played a lot of Elgar himself over in Germany. Elgar had to had to struggle really a little bit he was having you know his his works like the dream of Gerontius a wonderful oratorio and the apostles these were being done as uh, great choral masterpieces in cathedrals 
What about um, things like the Enigma variations and so on and all the yes, mystery that, that surrounded him? He was, him. He was more established. Then. Yes. But the first symphony has a, a sort of scale and a depth that, that would appeal to musicians anywhere. It, it, so, so that was not... You, you couldn't look at the first symphony and say, well, that, has, that is from British influences. You just couldn't say that. writing music at the same time as Elgar. Was Butterworth there? No. Was he later? Butterworth really is a is one of the generation of composers like Ivor Gurney that emerged from the First World War years. That when Britain, was Britain a little bit later when... Yes, Britain, Britain died in the 70s. Yeah. I was very lucky to meet him once. Tell us about meeting Benjamin Britten. It was at Aldborough and I'd been to Aldborough to play keyboard Continuum. That was his hometown, wasn't it? He 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 built the uh, Snape Snape Maltings. the concert hall mm. in Snape, and it, it, this studio is fashioned on what I think is best about the acoustic at Snape, in that its walls are brick, and the floors are wood, and all the seats are wood, so the sound there. I mean. It, Benjamin Britten knew what he what he wanted wanted to create, and they had festival after festival after festival. And I'd played there when I was a student at Cambridge. But the occasion I met him was when the National Youth Orchestra. I was timpanist in the National Youth Orchestra. When we went there to play a concert um, of his music. No, but we played the UK premiere of Shostakovich's Fifteenth Symphony with Charles Groves conducting. We did that at the proms and then went up to Snape. Now, Benjamin Britten and Dmitry Shostakovich were very, very close friends. And as modern composers, I think everyone would agree, they combined one foot deeply in the past, i.e. grounded, in where music came from, and another foot outside in the fresh fields of innovation. So after the concert, the principals in each section, the leader, the first flute, the first trombone, first horn, first oboe, we all lined up, and Benjamin Britten was brought down in his wheelchair. He had very little time to live. He was pushed down with a rug across his legs, and he'd been in the box um, almost invisibly for the concert. And it was very touching. He spoke to all of us, one in turn. Extraordinary. Uh, it, it, quite, quite extraordinary. I'd worked with Peter Pears, of course, his long-term partner. Who was a singer. Yes. I'd played in concerts with him as a student, but I'd never met Benjamin. None of us would ever forget that. Now, he, he sums up what I think is rather beautiful about it. British music making, and I've, I've mentioned it before, which is that we soak up 
everything that's going on elsewhere. And then it becomes part of us. And so our background is very wide. And that's very particularly British. Joanna here. Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much. You really introduced me to Britain's music. There's something extraordinary about his choice of, I'm going to say all this wrong, but the orchestration, the instruments he uses, because the sea quality of Peter Grimes... Yes. You only play me now, you just play me, you, you sometimes say, what's this? And three notes in, I know it's, it's, it's Britain because of that. Is it a flute? What is, what is, what is a no, he, pipe? He, what is he, it he You're plays? talking about Peter Grimes and the sea interviews. Yes, and yes. so much of it is, is about the sea. And there's one which is moonlight on, on the sea at night. And uh, he, he creates the undulating waves with syncopated chords against which you hear little sounds like a like a light like a lighthouse light flicking round and he shapes all that in 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 a way that you kind of feel you identify with the sea because it grows and grows and grows and then diminishes then it grows again comes up to a climax and then it it's it it creates an an immediate pictorial image in pictures and I know that you who've got obviously far more sophisticated musical mind than I have you seem to have a separate capacity in your brain for hearing it as music I almost always have pictures of what it what the music sounds like what could you define those pictures yeah sometimes I can you you hear sort of I mean for instance the the moonlight sonata yeah. Now, already you've been given the clue. It's called the Moonlight Sonata. If it was just called Beethoven's Sonata Number Thing, I don't know. But when you hear the Moonlight Sonata, I see the moonlight, I see soft lawns and shafts of light coming through into darkened rooms. And That's the Beethoven, so I've got a question for you. Okay. I'm going to play the opening. <laughs> playing by memory but some of that might that's one of the few pieces I could play but some of those notes weren't exactly right but you don't care about that maestro because you knew you were just sketching it out <laughs> you're just doing a rough drawing of the last supper uh, because I was thinking of the question the question I was going to say yeah it was so wrong you, that's you, you see moonlight, moonlight and yeah. you, so Debussy's yeah Claire de Lune Claire de Lune Light of the Moon
Is that the same picture? <laughs> no. And also, if that hadn't been called Claire de Lune, and I actually know that it's about that means moonlight, if that piece had been called an early spring morning, would I have then seen dewdrops and small movements of grasses in a big meadow or something? Would I have, am, am I already told what it is? Beethoven's pastoral, would I have known it was a pastoral symphony? Have I just been told things? Is Chopin's raindrop um, etude, is, or nocturne, whatever it is, is it because they've said raindrop and then you hear this insistent ding, 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 ding note? Would I have thought that was a raindrop? I don't know how suggestible I am or how many things. So if I'm told something, I then think that. It's because you said you, you always see pictures when you listen to music. Yeah. Realistic descriptions for pieces of music are not the composer's first port of call. So... Um, Sometimes Mussorgsky, Night on Bear Mountain. Come on, yes, but give that's me that. The, that's the, exactly, that's the, no. That's the so beginning Disney of got film that music. Right. That's the, the great mountain coming music. out and clawing the dead rising from graves. That's the beginning he of film music. He wrote it. I only say, what's your picture? Because it can't be that exact if you choose. And lots of people have written nocturnes. I know. It's an idea that should draw you in rather than thinking, oh, now what am I seeing? I'm seeing a, a deer taking a bite at the grass. I and... don't think that as detailed as that. But I do drift into areas. But I know that you hear music differently from me because sometimes it, with your colossal capacity, if I don't sing happy birthday in the right key, you literally can't recognise it because the grid of your bizarre brain sort of seems to accept music completely differently, which is why you quite often play things wrong because you know it's roughly right and it doesn't even <laughs> concern you whether it is right. No, not really. Because you've got a different <laughs> grid going. Now, I like a tune and I nip back and I go, no, you've got the wrong note there. But, you know, and you so do. I've... I, okay, so I receive things differently. <laughs> and obviously not as musical as you in any way. But it's just interesting how people hear music. And I think that a lot of people, when you hear a marching song, immediately hear, you know, you can hear the sound of the drums and it's written as martial music. Trump, trump, it's written to the speed of walking. Or a waltz, which is one, two, three, one, two, three. In the old days when we all danced, when we could all know what a waltz was, because most of us could do it, you could feel yourself dancing. So... Strauss, when he was writing waltzes and things, we all knew sort of we could see a flurry of great skirts and maybe chandeliers and lights. and So you, so you, you got a feeling of, a, a visual feeling. I, of I think that you, once you understand that, that uh, as a musician, you... I've noticed musicians hate being told what to think or what... what they don't like talking much about we music. Don't want, no, no, we don't want to be told what to think when we're playing music, no. Because the music is the thing. Dare I say it that, you know, if, if one gets into a Ferrari, you shouldn't really be thinking, well, it'll get me to the shops all right. What should you be thinking, Barlow? You should be thinking, wow, this is a Ferrari. The thrum of that engine. I know, that's how what you love. How it sounds and I know. how it feels. I know. And, um, I know, but I do think that. I also think, and this journey to the shops is very nice, now that I'm in my Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we had a Ferrari, do you remember? I made yes. you buy it. This makes it sound so sort of out of the thing, but it was a charity. 
of which I was a patron, and somebody had given it a Ferrari to, to buy, and nobody was bidding for it. And I felt so ashamed for the poor chap who'd given this Ferrari that I said, you can't buy it. And you said, don't be insane. And I said, buy it, buy it, get the Ferrari. So we bought the red Ferrari. I don't know what type it was, but it was red. Mm. Come on, say that. Say what? No, kind of, I'm not going no, to. Okay. No, anyway, so we had it. this Ferrari. If we still had it now, it would be Yes, I know, you'd be very pleased. I got rid rare. of it because, I, A, I couldn't get it out of second gear. And B, it went over the speed bumps very No, you very couldn't bad. get it out of first. You have to start the Ferrari in second. Well, I started in second. I couldn't get it out of second. <laughs> so I drove Jennifer Saunders and me away from a rehearsal in Shepherd's Bush, making quite a lot of noise because Ferraris do. And people going, oh, look, it's the Ab Fab girls. Oh, look, they're going very slowly. Anyway, it was horrible. The whole thing was horrible. What happened to it in the end? Oh, I, I think can I can tell you exactly what oh, happened look, you in the remember. end because you really loved that car. I know. But after about eighteen months, you you I, I well I could tell it was coming. You said we have to get rid of that. And <laughs> I know, and I got a smart car instead. <laughs> <laughs> but look, 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 look. Okay, look, look that's look, just look, look. silly. Just to get back, we, we're sort of on Britain, but we've sidetracked. Delius. I want you to tell me about Butterworth. I want you to tell me about Delius. I want you to... Well, the, there were several composers and poets who all suffered the same thing, the, the ravages of World War I, and it was very creative for them. And you, um, some poetry really came to the fore, which was Hausmann's Shropshire Lad, which was always slightly wistful for a country that was losing and countryside he wrote about Shropshire a country and countryside that was losing all of its young men and there's a lot of pain in in those poems a Shropshire lad George Butterworth was self-taught so he had no distinguished musical upbringing he taught himself but wrote these exquisite songs that's virtually all. He also wrote a piece on Banks of Green Willow, which again was reminiscent of a nostalgia for a world that was being lost. We've all heard these songs at various times. They are used commercially for background and adverts, and they sit very high, actually, up on the classic FM Hall of Fame. The Lark Ascending is, is really a piece also about nostalgia, for this feeling of losing something. But Vaughan Williams Williams. went Mm. much further as Mm. a composer. accused early on by critics, not really understanding his music much, he was accused of rolling over and over in a ploughed field on a muddy day, which is supposedly a barb aimed at the fact that he was being pastoral and wistful all the time, which he absolutely was not. He was writing about some of the most critical things going on at the time. Two of his symphonies, the, the, the fourth written at the time of the Second World War, is painful to hear. It's brutal. (laughs) ¶¶ 
and the sixth symphony, the last movement, very clearly points towards nuclear destruction. The War Requiem? Benjamin Britten. And where did you do the War Requiem? That was in Belgrade. Yes, I came to that and it was yes, it's, rapturous. It, the, the piece is a work of genius, really, because Britten and Piers were both pacifists and they actually went to America rather than be called up at the beginning of the Second World War. So it is very much an anti-war work, in between those movements are settings of Wilfred Owen poems from the First World War. That is something about he's my, you are my brother or something. There's one of those poems that is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, no, that's right. It's the last movement when two dead ghosts of two men who've killed each other on the battlefield recognise each other and then realise that they're just human beings Oh, it's an incredible poem. And finish by saying, let us sleep now. sounds a bit trite to say this, but do you think that such a thing, bringing a, a British composer with a British conductor and a couple of British singers over to do something like that was seen as somehow healing, a healing process of something? One kind? hoped, one hoped that would be the case. Music can say something about humanity and brotherhood, sisterhood, that a lot of others can't, simply because music in itself is a universal language. It's something that you share. And when you come together to play music with people, it's something incredibly special. I think it's why people gather in choral societies in this country, because the feeling of, of joining together as one with one common purpose, which is um, uh, music, there's something very positive about that. And sublime to the ridiculous, it's not really ridiculous, but when you hear great football or rugby crowds and singing Sweet Caroline or, or Swing Low or whatever the thing is. You know, they, it's, the, it's the thousands of voices raised together which just prickles your eyes a bit uh, sometimes. You, well, I don't think you can do it without, without weeping a tear or two. Yeah. And I've sung Jerusalem at the Oval when we won <laughs> the Ashes because it felt like the entire crowd was doing so. <laughs> and you can never sing louder than you do <laughs> at one of those, one of those events. Stevie, we've come to the end. I can't bear it. I've yet another one of these gorgeous podcasts. Thank you so much for talking to me today about, <laughs> about British composers and their music. I'd love you to pick something for us to go out with, maybe thinking about the war and the great war poets and maybe Butterworth or something like that. Yeah, I think so. The war's really profoundly affected cultural life in Britain and the artists really reflected 
what was genuinely felt at the same time as the nation was trying to show a very forward-looking positivity. And so I think the lads in their hundreds, which is from Houseman's Shropshire Lad, set by George Butterworth, self-taught and who suffered greatly from the First World War. And any version in particular? Um, well, could we possibly be allowed to have the version that Mark Stone and I recorded back in 2013? We recorded every song Butterworth wrote. And I think Mark sings the lads in their hundreds particularly beautifully with all the innocence and distant tragedy in it. Well, that's what we're going to play now. And we'll speak to you next week. This is Signing Off. This is Joanna and the Maestro. Goodbye. The lads in their hundreds to Ludlow come in for the fair. There's men from the barn and the forge and the mill and the fold. The lads for the girls and the lads for the liquor are there. And there with the rest are the lads that will never be In this episode, you've heard the following music. Handel's Music for the Royal Fireworks, La Réjouissance, performed by the English Baroque soloists and conducted by John Elliot Gardiner. And the record company was Decca, a division of Universal Music Operations Limited. Handel's Messiah, Part 1, and Suddenly There Was With the Angel. Performed by the Boston Baroque and Karen Clift, soprano, and conducted by Martin Perlman. And the record company was Telak International Corp, distributed by Concord. Sir Edward Elgar's Symphony No. 1 in A-flat major, opus 55, the final movement, performed by Staatskapelle Dresden and conducted by Sir Colin Davis, and the record company was Profil. Four C interludes from Peter Grimes, opus 33A, No. 3, Moonlight, by Benjamin Britten, performed by Andre Previn and the London Symphony Orchestra. Published by Hawks and Son Limited, and the record company was Parlophone Records Limited. Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 14 in C sharp minor, Moonlight Sonata. Performed by Stephen Barlow. Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy. Performed by Stephen Barlow. Mussorgsky's A Night on Bear Mountain. Performed by the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Jose Serabrier. And the record company was Naxos. The Lark Ascending by Rafe Vaughan Williams, performed by Stefan Askenazi Violin and conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt, published by Oxford University Press, and the record company was Demon Music Group Limited. Rafe Vaughan Williams Symphony No. 4 in F minor, first movement, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Bryden Thompson, published by Oxford University Press, and the record company was Chandos. Rafe Vaughan Williams Symphony No. 6 in E minor, fourth movement, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Bryden Thompson, published by Oxford University Press, and the record company was Chandos. Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, Opus 66, Let Us Sleep Now in Paradisum, by Benjamin Britten, performed by Dietrich Fischer Diskau, the Highgate School Boys Choir, Sir Peter Piers, the London Symphony Chorus, Galina Vishnevskaya, the Bach Choir, the Melos Ensemble of London, and the London Symphony Orchestra, and conducted by Benjamin Britten, 
published by Bosey and Hawkes Music Publishing Limited, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. Six songs from A Shropshire Lad, number five, The Lads in Their Hundreds, by A.E. Hausman and George Butterworth, performed by Mark Stone and accompanied by Stephen Barlow, and the record company was Stone Records. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Puccini's Turandot, Act 3, Scene 2, Diecimila anni al nostro imperatore, performed by Malaga Philharmonic Orchestra, Giovanna Casola and Alexander Rabari, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 61, Third Movement, performed by Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, Takako Nishizaki and Kenneth Jean, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.